This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 29th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. How should we think about the task of crafting effective public policy? At Cato University in July, Cato's Dan Griswold tackled that very big question. And getting to the goal line of expanding individual liberty, he says, often means making the case for pro-freedom policies that simply aren't politically feasible today. Why should we care about public policy? Well, first, it, it can't be ignored. Uh, maybe you can find a cabin up in the mountain somewhere, but they'll uh, come for you eventually. We're all affected. Uh, here's a quote from Pericles. Just because you do not take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. Um, you can't avoid it, and you might as well stand up and try to be a positive influence. And secondly, a related point, uh, if people who appreciate liberty don't step forward and take a stand, the vacuum will be filled by people who don't appreciate liberty or have another agenda. And here Thomas Jefferson put it beautifully, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. And then, of course, our ultimate goal in being involved in public policy should be to make public policy less important, to help advance civil society, to withdraw government from all the areas of life that it's involved in and where it shouldn't be. And here I think Ayn Rand captured it well. I am interested in politics so that one day I will not have to be interested in politics. I think that's what's at stake uh, for folks like us in the public policy debate. Well, before discussing the messy business of how public policy is made, the nitty gritty, I think it'd be helpful to construct a framework of what we mean uh, by public policy and how to analyze public policy, how to look at a public policy and take it apart and decide whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And here, it's not just merely describing public policy. You know, a a 23-year-old newspaper reporter can do that pretty well if they can hold their biases Uh, in check, but our calling is, I think, uh, higher than that, and that is to analyze public policy, to make uh, judgments about what is good and what is not good, and there's different ways of of doing that. And uh, in researching this with the help of uh, our intern, Meg Patrick, uh, came across a very useful book by Michael Munger of Duke University called Analyzing Policy, Choices, Conflicts, and Practices. I think Munger presents a very useful framework for looking at public policy. And I would guess if you sat down with any public, uh, any policy analyst or policy director at Cato, you'd find that consciously or subconsciously they're following uh, these uh, five steps. And as Munger said, the process of policy analysis is primarily the gathering of data and the measurements of various values achieved by different alternatives. Uh, There are five steps to public policy analysis. Articulating the problem, including the causation. What got us into this problem? What's the problem? What got us in there? A selection of criteria for judging success, successful policy. What do we want to accomplish through public policy? And then there's a comparison of alternative policies. Here are the alternatives. Here are uh, the potential results. Consideration of political and organizational constraints. What is possible under current uh, political uh, conditions? And then fifth, implementation 
and evaluation of the program. Well, let's look at these uh, one at a time. Problem formulation. This is very important. And by the way, uh, those of you uh, uh, college students here, I think this is a great thing to keep in mind when you're writing a, a term paper or a thesis paper. It's half the battle. State the problem. State your thesis. What are you trying to uh, solve here? Uh, you know, think of all the policy areas. Drug-related crime in Mexico. Uh, healthcare, how do we deliver healthcare for indigent, uh, indigent people? Uh, unfunded liabilities for government entitlement programs, a multi-trillion dollar problem. Illegal immigration and the trade deficit. These are issues uh, I speak and talk on a lot. And I think it's important to come up with theoretical models of causation. Uh, it's crucial to solving the problem. If you can explain in an in a understandable uh, way how, the problem, how we got into the problem, you're halfway to solving it because you can go at the root uh, causes of the problem. For example, what is driving illegal immigration? I start my analysis with a supply and demand of the labor market. Why do those low-skilled workers come here from Mexico and Guatemala? The trade deficit. Why do we, year after year, buy four or five hundred billion dollars more in stuff from the rest of the world than they buy from us? Why is that? Um, and once you start answering that, you're halfway home. Well then, uh, you've stated the problem. What's your selection of criteria? What, what do we want to accomplish? Here's where we are, and maybe why we're where we are. Where do we want to go? Uh, this is about ends uh, rather than means. And this brings up ethical issues, moral judgments. Uh, in the words of sociologists and economists, normative judgments rather than positive judgments. What ought to be rather than just what is? What is our basis for judging and choosing? Uh, at the Cato Institute, uh, it's kind of like the, uh, I don't know if any of you were Boy Scouts, but you know we remembered, uh, memorized to say we're trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Never made it to Eagle Scout, but I did remember that. At, at Cato, it's a little easier to remember, and it's a little closer to most people's hearts at Cato, and that is uh, we're about individual liberty, free markets, limited government, peaceful relations uh, among nations. Those are our normative values uh, that are our criteria for judging uh, successful public policy. And then and then you get into a comparison of alternatives. Okay, you say, here are, the, thing, here are the, the things that are important to accomplish in a given policy. Let's say illegal immigration. We want to solve that problem. What are our criteria? You know, individual freedom, uh, strengthening our market economy, uh, the size and scope of government, national security uh, in, in an era of, of terrorism. Peaceful relations among nations. What do, we, what do we weigh there? Our political culture. Uh, these are the criteria. And then you have your alternatives. And this is a, a matrix that Munger has uh, in his book. And you can kind of see how it would come together. Down the side are the things you want to accomplish. Across the top are the different approaches. And let's take illegal immigration. Uh, you could have completely open borders. And I get accused of being uh, in favor of that sometimes. Whoever wants to come here, come on in. Or you could have a more controlled system where the government 
uh, sees who's coming in and has certain criteria, but generally lets people come here who want to work uh, and save and build a better life in the United States. You could have enforcement only. This is a policy, this is a predominant policy option, certainly among congressional Republicans. Take the current law as it is and enforce it more and more. Spend billions more, extend that fence a few hundred miles. Anyway, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of policy, but all these different options that we have to, to sealing the border. And then you look at how it affects all those different criteria, then you have to weight it. And again, this may not be something that we do consciously with every study, but it's certainly whirring away like the operating system subconsciously uh, be behind it. You need to weigh the alternatives according to what uh, you value most. Well, I think the test, what is the test of good policy? Well, I think there are different ways you could approach this, but one is, I think, the moral argument. What is, what is moral? What is right? What is just? Uh, you have to look at, uh, ask questions like, uh, does this policy violate the basic individual rights of a group of people? Uh, does the policy use unnecessary force uh, to achieve uh, its goals of some socially optimal uh, outcome? Does it arbitrarily favor one group over another? These are questions that need to be uh, asked, and sometimes uh, uh, Cato seems to be the only one asking them. Here's another question, I think, where Cato plays a vital role. Is it constitutional? Uh, you know, the Tea Party uh, movement and the members who were aligned with the Tea Party came in with the idea that we're going to have a test for legislation. What a radical idea. Is it constitutional? Does the Constitution give the federal government the power uh, to, to do this? And it, it's the broader question about following rules, the, the rule of law rather than the rule of men, which is a theme of some of the talks we've heard uh, uh, today? Is it consistent with our American system of limited government, at least as it was founded, maybe not as it's practiced today? And then the impact on incentives. Is it consistent with human nature? This is where I think economics uh, plays a role. Not as people, not, a, not as we wish people would be, but as people are. Is it a policy that's practical in the real world <clears throat> as it is, as people are? And not just the intended consequences but the unintended consequences. Uh, and here, again, economics is a useful tool. Things like marginal analysis, you know, what happens with the incremental change uh, of, of a policy, not just the average, but on the margin. Cost-benefit analysis, what are another radical option, exposing public policy to a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, and thinking long-term, and thinking of the national interests and not just the special interest, and you see, uh, Economics in one lesson up there, and uh, one of our heroes at Cato, Frederick Bastiat, just a couple of quotes. Uh, I'm sure many of you have read Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, but here's how he summarizes what he defines as a good economist, and I think this defines good public policy analysis. He says, the bad economist sees only what immediately strikes the eye. The good economist also looks beyond. The bad economist sees only the direct consequences of a proposed course. The good economist looks also at the longer and indirect consequences. The bad economist sees only what the effect of a given policy has been or will be on one particular group. The good economist inquires also what the effect of the policy will be on all groups. And then Frederick Bastier, about 100 years before then, weighed in with a, a similar sentiment. 
in his famous essay, uh, What is Seen and What is Unseen? There is only one difference between a bad economist and a good one. The bad economist confines himself to the visible effect. The good economist takes into account both the effect that can be seen and those effects that must be foreseen. I think those are excellent guides to public policy. And then, of course, uh, what is possible? It's great to come up with this North Star idea of, of where we should be, but how about uh, what we can do under the current uh, conditions? What's the most we can accomplish under the current conditions? The political feasibility. Will politicians and the public support something enough to actually make it a, a, a policy, or at least move us uh, forward? <clears throat> um, the organizational feasibility, looking within government, uh, will appointed officials support it and implement it and in a way that makes its success possible. Uh, at Cato, we have a motto that I hear every now and then, radical and relevant. Uh, we try to be radical in Washington terms, and just talking about the Constitution and in individual liberty can make you a radical uh, in Washington. But we don't want to be so radical that we're on the fringe and nobody listens to us. Uh, you want to be radical and relevant. Uh, be putting forward policies that are on the fringe of respectable uh, conversation in Washington, uh, but at least not beyond the pale, where you get a hearing uh, at, at the table. Uh, for any given policy goal, there are a range of options. Uh, it had a, a brief moment in the sun last year. Some of you might have heard of the Overton window. Uh, this is named after a, 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 a wonderful fellow who passed away, tragically, uh, uh, at a young age, about 40, uh, a few years ago. He was a vice president at the Mackinac Center in Michigan, Joe Overton. And he articulated a way of thinking about a public policy that talked about the range of possible choices. And you see this uh, a chart up there. And this is the Overton window. And of course, the Mackinac Center, like the Cato Institute, like just about everybody in this room, our goal is to move policies in a direction that's favorable to more freedom. But we can't get to the, uh, necessarily get to the goal line uh, in one fell swoop. We have to move the ball down the field, sometimes in uh, five, 10 yard chunks, sometimes half yard chunks. But the Overton window shows us uh, how, how to do that. And the way Joe Overton articulated, by the way, Glenn Beck uh, made it somewhat famous with uh, a novel of that same name. Uh, but the point was that at any given moment, and this is from Wikipedia, so it's, you know it's uh, uh, important, it's made it to Wikipedia, describes the Overton window as a window of possibility. Uh, and that window, at any given moment, that window includes a range of policies considered to be politically acceptable in the current climate of public opinion, with acceptable defined as something a politician can recommend without losing the next election. So it's, you can embrace it without committing political suicide. Uh, and again, going back to my sympathy for politicians, you know, if they don't want to commit political suicide, you can't blame them. It's partly to do with the people, what the people will uh, uh, tolerate. And Joe Overton said, at any given moment, a policy can be unthinkable or radical. Those are problems for politicians. It can be acceptable, not anywhere near passage, but acceptable, sensible, popular, and then finally, policy. Uh, these are the, the Overton window, the importance of ideas on public policy, 
And what we do at the Cato Institute is that we are trying to move that Overton window. We're trying to take policies that 30 years ago were unthinkable and radical and make them at least acceptable for politicians to talk about and survive the next election and maybe even uh, uh, thrive. And then we want to make them be considered sensible and popular and finally uh, uh, policy. Dan Griswold is author of Mad About Trade. He is also director of the Cato Institute's Trade Policy Studies. You can get your copy of Mad About Trade at Cato.org.